Let's chat about how to get what you need for your home when you don't have a lot of cash or credit. You can do that at Aaron's. Rent to own appliances, furniture, and tech from top brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. But say you don't need it anymore, no problem. At Aaron's, you can return your product at any time or even upgrade it for something new. Life's always changing. With Aaron's, your stuff can change right along with it. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. See your local store for details. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It's an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA Draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like in the parking lot at your kid's peewee championship game. A trophy bigger than your five-year-old is blocking the rear windshield of the car in front of you. As they reverse into you, you're stuck on defense. And if you don't have the right auto insurance coverage, this crash could drain your athletic fund. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Based on coverage selected. Subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. The Volume. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight here at The Volume. Happy Thursday again, everybody. We are live on AMP, so if you're watching on YouTube or listening on the podcast feeds, don't forget that AMP is the very first place that you guys can get these shows. Let's take a break from looking back into NBA history and talk about some actual meaningful basketball taking place right now as we are, I think, one day. I think the first set of games are tomorrow. I think the USA plays on Saturday, but we're heading into the FIBA World Cup, and a lot of our favorite NBA players are playing in it, and we have a very interesting Team USA team this year. So we're going to uh, do a deep dive kind of into uh, previewing this tournament, heavy, heavy focus on Team USA, brief mentions of some of the other teams around the world. Do you guys know the drill? Before we get started, subscribe to the Volumes YouTube channel so you don't miss any more of our videos. Follow me on Twitter at underscore JasonLT so you guys don't miss any show announcements. And last but not least, for whatever reason you miss one of these videos and you can't get back over to YouTube to finish, don't forget you can find them wherever you get your podcasts under Hoops tonight. All right, let's talk some basketball. So to give you guys an idea, we're not going to cover every single game, but I do plan on doing a few videos during the World Cup to cover it. I personally find it very interesting as a basketball fan. I would imagine the kind of people that would like my show probably are excited for this tournament as well. And we've been pining for some basketball, and I think this is a nice little appetizer before we head into a very exciting NBA season. So Team USA went 5-0 and in their exhibitions. Uh, they did trail in the second half of two of their games. <clears throat> so they're certainly beatable. Um, but they have looked really good down the stretch in those two particular games and blew everybody else out. So they have looked impressive so far. The starting lineup has been the least impressive group that the team has run out there. The starting lineup they've been going with is Jalen Brunson with Brandon Ingram, Jaron Jackson, Anthony Edwards, and Mikhail Bridges. And this, to me, is a great example of the concept of diminishing returns that I talk about a lot on this show. So uh, the example most recently that I've been using with you guys is the idea of Bradley Beal joining the Phoenix Suns. You know, in a vacuum in a team like on Washington where I need a guy to create 
shots, break down the defense, basically be my offensive engine. I'd rather have a guy like Bradley Beal than a guy like Contavious Caldwell Pope, right? Because just if I ask Contavious Caldwell Pope to run a thousand pick and rolls, 300 ISOs and 150 post-ups, like he's just not going to be nearly as efficient generating shots for his team the way that Bradley Beal can do, right? But in a situation like the Phoenix Suns, where I've already got Kevin Durant and Devin Booker on the team, I don't need him to run 1,000 pick and rolls. I don't need him to run 300 ISOs and 150 post-ups. I need him to do some of that stuff, but for the most part, it's going to be a lot of like guarding on the perimeter, crackdown rebounding from the perimeter, running your lane in transition, taking and making spot-up threes, driving closeouts, second-side creation, a lot of like supporting role type of stuff. Because if I have Bradley Beal run 1,000 pick-and-rolls, 300 ISOs, and 150 post-ups, that's taking touches away from better players and Devin Booker and Kevin Durant. So that's kind of the general concept of diminishing returns. And you see a lot of that with this Team USA starting lineup. Because the way I see it, there are basically like two general styles of offensive basketball. There's like ball player movement basketball, which is like really quick decisions. The ball never sticks in one place for more than a second or two. Nobody really takes a tough off the dribble shot unless it's an end of the shot clock situation. And everyone's just driving and kicking and driving and kicking, trying to get a wide open layup or a wide open three. That's like ball player movement offense, right? Then there's brute force offense. Brute force offense is like, we've got the best guy. Let's give him the ball. Let's create a good amount of space for him to operate or give him a a screen or something to help him get to a specific matchup he wants. And then let's give him space to cook, right? And there's values in both styles. I think a lot of times you'll see some coaches even be like, oh, why are we doing this brute force type of deal? And, And especially in the lower levels, you'll see that a lot in college basketball as well. And what they don't realize, uh, those specific coaches, is that when the game just degenerates at the end of games and the defenses are super locked in, the refs are swallowing their whistles and letting a lot of guys get away with fouls, they've seen your sets all game, so they're in front of your sets, you need a guy who can just, you know, do what Anthony Edwards has been doing for the for the Team USA and, like, backing his man down in the post and taking tough fadeaway jump shots over his right shoulder or taking tough pull-up threes off the bounce. Like, there's an important spot in the game for that style, but you don't want to do it all game. You want to ideally avoid it as much as possible unless you're in a late clock situation or you're at the end of a game, right? And the problem is, is the starters for Team USA, they like to play brute force basketball with a lineup that doesn't make a ton of sense to do it. There's a redundancy in having Brandon Ingram, a guy who's used to conserving energy on defense and and kind of resting off the ball because he has such a massive offensive responsibility, right? Same thing with Jalen Brunson. He's used to having the ball in his hands, having to make a ton of decisions for the Knicks, and then he conserves some energy on the defensive end and conserves some energy off the ball, right? You guys know how highly I value Jalen Brunson and Brandon Ingram. Both of those guys were in my top 25 players this year. I, I view those guys extremely highly. But within this context, it's different. This is, you know, it's funny. As I've done my player rankings, I've had a lot of people be like, why are you overvaluing team accomplishments? Like, this player's really good. If you put him in that situation, he'd be great. Yeah, but it's not an individual sport. Basketball is a team sport. So, uh, whatever we want to say about individual players, Jalen Brunson and, and Brandon Ingram are clearly the second and third best players on the team, right? 
behind Anthony Edwards, but for whatever reason, in the flow of this basketball team, it's not working super well. And that's because a team a team of basketball players, a group of five basketball players in a lineup, is a very complicated living organism. And you're not just the sum of your parts there. You're, you're actually about filling responsibilities on the floor. And you've got three guys that love to fill the same responsibility and aren't great in other situations. And so then when they go to the bench and Tyrese Halliburton comes in and he starts making super quick decisions and the ball's popping around and guys like Mikhail Bridges and Austin Reeves, Mikhail plays with the starters, but Kerr and Spolster have been leaning super heavy on him in minutes, so he's been playing a lot with the bench groups as well. But guys like Mikhail Bridges and Austin Reeves, Mikhail, before he went to Brooklyn, is used to being a guy who's just spotting up and attacking closeouts. Austin Reeves took on a bigger on-ball responsibility with the Lakers at the end of the year, but he's used to playing off of LeBron James, and for a year and a half before that, he was primarily an off-ball player. So those guys are comfortable playing in that style of basketball. They're used to not conserving energy, but rather diverting most of their energy towards the defensive end and, and in the dirty work of the game. And so the bench unit just seems to flow better, and it's more fluid offensively, and they've got Josh Hart out there sometimes too, and he plays a similar style. And Paolo Boncaro is doing a really nice job just playing his ass off as a backup center. We'll get to that here in a little bit. But that bench group is just playing better, and they're erasing deficits, and they're building leads. Tyrus Halliburton was a plus 17 versus Germany. Jalen Brunson was plus 5, and Brandon Ingram was plus 1. So that kind of gives you an idea of just how much more successful on the scoreboard the bench group has looked for the most part. Um, but here's the thing. You guys know I think Steve Kerr and Eric Spolster are the two best coaches in the world. And they see all of this stuff. And you could tell they made all of the necessary adjustments in that Germany game in the second half. Germany led by nine with about seven minutes left in the fourth quarter. They also led by about 13 uh, with a few minutes left in the third quarter as well. And Steve Kerr and Eric Spolstra ended up closing with a more sensical group of guys. It was Anthony Edwards with Austin Reeves and Mikhail Bridges, two great off-ball players. Jaron Jackson is their defensive fulcrum at the center position. And then he went with either Tyrese Halliburton or Bobby Portis in the closing group, depending on what uh, the size, because Germany was playing two centers and crashing the glass a lot, so they had some issues there. And obviously, if you go, you know, Ant, Reeves... Halliburton, that's a somewhat smaller, um, you know, one, two, three, right? So obviously they can go bigger when they need to by playing Bobby Portis the way they did, or I even think they could get away with playing Palaboncaro in the closing group, so we'll get to that in a little bit, but they played much better down the stretch of that game. They got a ton of stops. They, they switched. They When Tyrese Halliburton came in in the mid-third quarter, they played that fluid offense as they shrunk the lead from 13 down to something more manageable, and, uh, uh, even against some of Germany's you know starting lineup players. And then Anthony Edwards kind of took over the game late as more of a brute force style when it made sense. And honestly, it could have been better than it was because they were kind of locked up at 86 there for a while, and Ant was doing a really nice job drawing multiple defenders and making kickout passes and they generated like back to back to back wide open threes on the left wing on the backside that they missed just happened to miss from good shooters I think Mikhail Bridges missed one too uh, Bobby Portis missed a wide open catch and shoot corner three but then finally Mikhail Bridges made one and because they were getting stops during that whole time all of a sudden they're up three and then the lead grows and they end up winning 99-91. So I thought it was super interesting. They actually closed that game on a 22-5 to run. And like I said, if they would have shot better, it could have been even better from there. So I think I think Steve Kerr and Eric Spolstra have got a good feel for this team now after the five exhibition team uh, games. And this is kind of what I put down. This is for my uh, – I've watched probably three and a half of the five games that they played. 
And here's what I've kind of picked up from this team. Anthony Edwards is clearly the best player. And he's the guy that when they go brute force style, they have to run through Ant. In the starting lineup, it's kind of like your turn, my turn. It's like Jalen, and then it's Brandon, and then it's Ant, and then it's Brandon, and then it's Jalen. And and you could just tell none of the three of them are really getting in a great rhythm. And, and so it's redundant, and there's some diminishing returns there. But when Ant is actually the focal point of the offense, he's been fantastic. He's got a 57% true shooting percentage so far in these five games. He's shooting 50% effective field goal percentage on pull-up jump shots, which is obviously amazing. 81% at the rim. 1.17 points per possession in pick and roll so far. 1.05 points per possession in ISO. And then he's only run two post-ups, but he scored two points. So he's up over a point per possession in all three static half-court shot creation situations. And he's playing excellent defense. So it makes sense for him to be the fulcrum. Jalen Brunson has played really well, too. And if you look at his shot-making and his static creation stuff, it's been great. But he hasn't been nearly as good defensively as Ant. It's actually been a little bit of a problem how much dribble penetration he's giving up. So like it, it, it's it, it, with how well Tyrese Halliburton's playing with the bench group, I think you actually have to close with Jalen Brunson on the bench the way that they did. But I'll, I'll kind of get to that here in a minute. Ingram just isn't playing super well. He's 14 for 33 from the field so far. He's shooting really well in catch and shoot situations, but he's missing just about anything else. I think he needs to kind of, he's the biggest guy that needs to make an adjustment for this team to have a chance to win the gold medal. I would have Brandon Ingram adopt more of a Mikhail Bridges play style. Way fewer on-ball reps, primarily focusing on defense and rebounding, which that starting group is struggling a little bit with rebounding. And then prioritize being a spot-up player, taking and making catch-and-shoot threes and driving closeouts. If he kind of embraces more of a Mikhail Bridges role, I think he becomes the perfect slot in with that closing group. Instead of having to go with Tyrese Halliburton or Bobby Portis or Palaboncaro, then you can close with Ingram and Mikhail Bridges next to each other. But if if, if Brandon Ingram wants to not commit to the defensive end and just take a bunch of tough off-the-dribble jump shots, which right now he's not making, even though we know he can make them when he's the focal point of an offense, when he's in with in a Pelicans jersey, right? If he can't figure that out, I think you might have to go away from him in the closing group. But ideally, you want Ingram to slot into that role. Um, Anthony Edwards is clearly the guy. Like I said, uh, Steve Kerr specifically said that. Uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that I had Anthony Edwards as the highest player on Team USA in my player rankings this year at number 15. I continue to just be completely impressed by him. I'm becoming a huge fan of his game and his overall attitude and competitiveness. I think he's poised for a ridiculous season. I've, uh, you'll get, you guys will see this in my uh, season previews, uh, which we're a couple weeks away from when I start going through teams. like I think Minnesota, especially if they can figure out what to do with Carl Towns, if you give me... Anthony Edwards with Jaden McDaniels and Rudy Gobert, and I'm getting a ton of stops, and I have that dude, Anthony Edwards, the alpha dog. I, I like my chances as a basketball team to win a lot of games and to make some noise in the playoffs. So that's something I'm really looking forward to. Um, the biggest thing that stood out to me uh, from that closing group is Austin Reeves simply has to close with this group. He simplifies the pecking order of decision-making. Austin Reeves is the guy I would basically replace Jalen Brunson with in the starting line, or in, not in the starting lineup. I think you should start with Jalen Brunson because of the politics of it and the egos at play. You start Jalen Brunson, but you give him a quick uh, pull, and then you close with Austin Reeves. Why? Simplifies decision-making, gets the ball out of his hands, and gets the ball in Anthony Edwards' hands instead of Anthony Edwards and Jalen Brunson basically playing tug-of-war over who controls possessions. Austin Reeves kind of simplifies that process. He's a dead-eye spot-up player. 
He's converted 15 spot-up possessions into 24 points. Think about how insane that is. That's 1.6 points per possession. He's 8 for 12 on catch-and-shoot threes. So you can't leave him open. He's going to make it every single time. If you chase him off the line, he's going to make the right play, and he's not going to force a shot unless he has to at the end of the shot clock, which makes him the perfect guy to put at the end of a lineup like this. At the fifth guy in a four-man, when you have four other really talented players, Austin makes a ton of of sense. And he can create his own shot if he needs to in a pinch. He's around 15 pick and rolls, resulting in 18 points, which is really good. And he's holding his own when teams target him on defense. Teams have tried to post him up as a mismatch five times, and he's only given up four points, including forcing two turnovers. He had a really nice strip against Germany in their last game. I just think he's the perfect guy in that lineup. That's why you see it in the scoreboard. That's why they're winning all their minutes with Austin Reeves on the floor by a lot. And that's why Steve Kerr, the best coach in the world, went with him in the closing lineup. I think they need to continue to do that. Mikhail Bridges still has to close. He's been awesome. He's defending super well. He's kind of been like their dirty work guy on the perimeter. He's shooting 67% effective field goal percentage on catch-and-shoot jump shots. That's awesome. He's kind of like their Swiss Army knife in that group. I think he makes a ton of sense. Obviously, Jaron Jackson has been holding down the rim. They've done a really nice job. They did it against Germany. Again, 22-5 to run over a seven-minute span. That goes to show you just how good their defense can be when they really, really lock in because Jaron Jackson's such a gifted rim protector and the guys in that lineup are doing their job chasing guys over the top of screens and funneling them into Jaron Jackson. Again, if Brandon... So again, if we got Jaron Jackson, Mikhail Bridges... Austin Reeves and Anthony Edwards, that fifth guy is the guy that's kind of up in the air. Again, if Ingram is locked in on the details, I think you close with Ingram. He's a better player. He has the tools to be a really impactful defensive player. Yeah, I go with Ingram. But if Ingram is not focused on those things and he's in his feelings about how he's not getting as much touches as he deserves, that's when you make the a, a move to somebody different. If you can get away with going small, depending on the matchup, I like Tyrese Halliburton. Dead-eye catch-and-shoot shooter, really good ball mover, makes a ton of sense there. If you have to go big, Paolo or Bobby Portis represent interesting options. I wanted to quick shout-out Paolo Boncaro. I've been super impressed by him in these exhibitions, just with how hard he's playing. He's still a whole bull in a china shop on the offensive end of the floor, just kind of seems like a little bit rushed and, and is struggling to kind of identify what he should do in that role. But on the defensive end and rebounding, I've actually been really impressed with him. And I kind of keep seeing this like potential for small ball center with Paolo Boncaro. I remember when I watched him in summer league the first time, his size was what flashed to me the most as I was watching him play in person. He is absolutely huge and he is capable of holding down a lineup as a backup center. And I think that's a really interesting thing for a potential future Orlando Magic group that could run out lineups with a bunch of dudes who are between, you know, 6'8 and 6'11 that can dribble, shoot, and pass, but also can defend. Um, so that's super, super exciting. So essentially the pathway of the game, I'd stick with your existing starters, right? Stick with Brunson and Ingram with Mikhail Bridges, Anthony Edwards, and Jaron Jackson. Quick plugs on Jalen Brunson and Brandon Ingram if they're not playing any defense. Obviously, ride your bench groups longer. I'd stretch those units out longer. And then in the closing group, you move Austin Reeves into it. And then if Brandon Ingram's not playing well, you slot someone else in there. Now, would I pick Team USA to win the World Cup this year? I think it makes a ton of sense that USA is the favorite. And if I had to pick one team, I certainly would pick USA to win. But if I had to choose kind of like the old Tiger Woods question, if I had to choose between Tiger Woods and the field, or in this case, if I had to choose between Team USA and the field, I'd pick the field. I, I just think, I don't think Team USA is good enough to blow teams out. And that means they're going to be in close games. 
And there are some other really good players in this tournament that if they end up in a close game with Team USA, can out-execute them. Like Canada. Canada has Shea Gilgis-Alexander, who in my opinion, I had him at 13th in my player rankings. I think he's better than anybody on Team USA. Ant is very close, and Ant could outplay him, but SGA is at least at that level, if not a little bit higher. They have Dylan Brooks, RJ Barrett, and Lou Dort. All guys who are outstanding perimeter defenders. R.J. Barrett's having a really impressive international play sequence here. Uh, just beating people off the dribble and finishing with his left hand at the rim. They had a really impressive game in a overtime win against uh, against Germany. At least I think it was overtime. But it was a really, really close game I watched uh, between Germany and Canada where R.J. Barrett basically took down the, took over the game down the stretch. And then they have Kelly Olynyk as like a floor spacer. They're flawed team uh, because they... Like guys like Lou Dort and Dylan Brooks can't shoot, and RJ Barrett's somewhat inconsistent as a shooter, so they can go really cold offensively for a while. So I would not pick them to win. I'd pick USA to win. But yeah, if you're in a dogfight against Team USA, there's absolutely a chance that our uh, that uh you know Dylan Brooks and RJ Barrett and Lou Dort could lock in on defense, and Shea Gilgis Alexander could make a bunch of big plays offensively down the stretch and, and beat a USA team in an elimination game. So that's a team that's a threat. France has Rudy Gobert and Evan Fournier. Obviously a bad shooting game from Team USA where they're all over-penetrating into Rudy Gobert could be a problem if Fournier makes some shots. Australia has Josh Giddy and Patty Mills and Matisse Thybul. Uh They did lose Jock Landale, which severely hurts their chances. He had an ankle injury, but they still have a puncher's chance. And then Slovenia, like Luca's having an awesome sequence here. He's just absolutely flambeing everybody in the post. He's got 22 points on 13 post-ups so far this summer. 1.12 points per possession in ISO. 56% effective field goal percentage on pull-up jump shots. He's playing super well. I wouldn't want to face him in an elimination game. So again, like I'd pick the U.S. in any of those matchups, but they're not good enough to blow those teams out. And you get a couple of close games, all it takes is one of them going the wrong way. So USA should be the favorite. I'm going to pick them to win the tournament, but given the choice between the U.S. and the field, I think the field is a safer bet. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It is an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and number one pick in the 2010 NBA Draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. CJ will bring his A-list comedian buddies to keep it light and fire off some hoops takes. Plus, John will be inviting current and former NBA players, friends, and teammates to join the show as well to give their unfiltered accounts of what really goes on in the league from a player's perspective. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? Let's chat about how to get what you need when you need it. You can do that at errands. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech like computers and gaming systems. Plus, errands has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. And you can pay a little at a time until it's yours forever. But here's the cool part. Say you're renting a 65-inch smart TV and decide you don't want it anymore. At Aaron's, you can return it at any time. Or maybe you want to downsize to a 55-inch or upgrade to an 86-inch. You can do that too. Return it, then take home something new. Life's always changing. With Aaron's, your stuff can change right along with it. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store 
or visit errands.com for more details. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. See your local store for details. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. We're continuing our top 25 players the last 25 years today with number 17, 16, 15, and 14. You guys know the drill before we get started. Subscribe to the Volumes YouTube channel so you don't miss any more of our videos. Follow me on Twitter at underscore JasonLT so you guys don't miss any show announcements. And if for whatever reason you miss one of these videos and you can't get back over to YouTube to finish, don't forget you can find them wherever you get your podcasts under Hoops Tonight. All right, let's talk some basketball. So a couple things uh, uh, from the comments on the last video. First of all, shout out to Muneeb2001 or M-U-N-E-E-B2001. You were the person who guessed the two players ahead on the list that are uh, not champions and Steve Nash and Allen Iverson. So good guess there. Also, still several of you guys who are very upset with Chris Paul not being on the list. And I talked a little bit about this yesterday, but the consistent theme that I'm seeing from people is saying that talking about rings culture and how that uh, messes with analysis and then just basically struggling to see the difference between evaluating players in a vacuum versus what actually happened, right? So like, um, I want to differentiate between those two because there's value in both, right? Like, for instance, if I, it's like with my uh, top 25 players in the league this year, right? If I'm evaluating players in a vacuum, I'm probably going to have Luka at three or four. I'd still go Jokic one and Steph two, but I'd have either Giannis at three and Luka at four or Luka at three and Giannis at four, right? If I'm evaluating based on the future. But that's not the purpose of that specific list for me. That list for me is more of like an award ceremony. That list is like, let's talk about what actually happened. And even though I do view Luka Doncic in a vacuum as one of the five best basketball players in the world, there were nine guys this season that I thought deserved more credit for what they accomplished actually in the actual basketball games that took place, right? And so that's just kind of a a difference between those two concepts. As a general manager, if I have an option in an open draft to take Jimmy Butler or Luka Doncic or year 21 LeBron James or Luka Doncic, I'm obviously taking Luka, but I'm not operating in a vacuum. That list for me is more of an award ceremony. If you guys did a list, you might look at it more as an in a vacuum type of situation. And if we were discussing the list in that sort of situation, I'm obviously going to rank my list very differently. Chris Paul is obviously a better basketball player than guys like Chauncey Billups or Jason Kidd, right? Or even Tony Parker. But uh, Jason Kidd, it's more of a toss-up. But at least with Chauncey Billups and Tony Parker, you're taking Chris Paul, right? And if we were operating in a vacuum then yeah, I would have Chris Paul that high. But again, mine's more of an award ceremony. Mine is more talking about what actually happened. 
And those guys have more impressive resumes to me in terms of top-end accomplishments as it pertains to winning basketball games at the highest level. Obviously, if I took Tony Parker and swapped him out for Chris Paul, Chris Paul is going to be a multiple-time champion right now. But that I just want to differentiate between those two. It's not like I'm saying Chris Paul is not top 25 because I'm just trying to shit on who he was as a basketball player. That's not what I'm saying. I'm literally talking about what actually happened. And I see there's value in that. I think that in terms of... Uh, reflecting on life, we have a tendency to try to talk about what could have been, right? Like even me personally, there are times when I look back and think about some decisions I made in my early 20s that directly affected my basketball career. And sometimes uh, I think about what might have happened had I done something differently. And that's great and all, but that's not what happened. What actually happened is what actually happened. And I'm here where I am as a result. And my college basketball story is is a product of that, right? And that's set in stone. I can't go back and change that. And that is the reality. We can talk about what might have happened with Chris Paul if he got an opportunity to be the second best player on a team while he was in his prime. But unfortunately, we didn't really get that option. And so we don't get to have that data and there is no trophy at the end of that road. And so again, if if it helps you guys, one of the easiest ways to put it is this list is more of an award ceremony. This is a, is a, a, a chance to look back at what actually happened in NBA history and focus on that rather than talking about hypotheticals. You'll notice we add the big, the big what if, so that we can talk about hypotheticals over the course of this. And, and again, like I talked, Chris, Paul's still active. Chris Paul's a player that I've talked about a lot on my show. Again, like I said yesterday, you guys know how highly I view him in terms of his actual basketball talent when he was at his peak. But just for the criteria I set up on this list, it came up differently. If I was evaluating the top 25 players of the last 25 years just based solely on in a vacuum performance, yeah, guys like Joel Embiid aren't going to make the list, right? It's going to be a little bit different. You're going to evaluate guys a little bit different, but that's not how it works. So hopefully that gives you guys, again, like I said yesterday, this is attempt number three to explain it. So we'll see. Hopefully that goes, uh, um, helps you guys understand a little bit better. So number 17, Anthony Davis. By the way, the first NBA game I ever went to was to see Anthony Davis. I, um, just watched games on TV as a kid and never actually bothered to go to a game. And then I finally did, I think it was in 2015 or 16. And I watched Anthony Davis when he was with the Pelicans. He was the second best player on a championship team in 2020, four time, first team, all NBA, six time, all NBA overall, four time, all defense. And he led the league in blocks three times blocks per game. I should say I put his prime down as 2015 to the present in that stretch. He averaged 26 points, 11 rebounds and three assists per game to go with 2.3 blocks per game on 59% true shooting. And in the playoffs, he averaged 26, 11 and three with 2.2 blocks per game on 62% true shooting. I think Anthony Davis, like when we look back on this era, his claim to fame is he's the best defensive player of this era when he's healthy. There are more accomplished defensive players, right? Guys like Kawhi Leonard, Draymond Green that have won more awards and have had more recognition in terms of what they can do. Rudy Gobert is another guy that's got a lot of regular season recognition. But when it comes down to actual defensive peak, I have never seen a player in this era reached the individual defensive ceiling that Anthony Davis reached in the 2020 playoffs. And he was just only a small level below that in this past postseason. When it comes to actual defensive impact on on a game by one single player, or on a series by one single player, I don't think anybody in this era has touched what Anthony Davis has been able to do, and I think that's what he'll be remembered for. 
His archetype. He's one of the few unicorns to come into the NBA in this century. He doesn't really resemble any player who came before. Ridiculous length. He's six foot ten, but he has a seven foot six wingspan. He's super quick feet and good hand eye coordination. He handles the ball really well, moves his feet really well. He's not clumsy. Great hands, catches, and finishes everything around the rim. Like I said earlier, best defender of this era, best rim protector in this era. As a matter of fact, if we remove Walker Kessler, who only has one season, no player in the entire NBA has averaged more blocks per game than Anthony Davis since he came into the league in 2015. He's also a good switch defender. Um, We look at situations like the semifinals this year and him getting a couple of stops on Steph Curry and even stretching into the uh, regular season the last couple years. you, you, You see guards like get a switch on Anthony Davis and they think they can beat him off the dribble like Kate Cunningham did it a couple times in Detroit or Tyrese Halliburton did it this year with the Pacers. Did you guys get Anthony Davis on a switch and they think they have an advantage and they just don't. He's too quick and he's too his defensive IQ is too high and his physical tools are too great. Um, also ran the floor really well before his injuries. I think I, I, I've been critical of his ability to keep up in the transition pace of the game in recent years. Um Total Swiss Army knife on offense. He's a great role man. He's got an arsenal of little short jump sh- jumpers and pop shots in the lane, floaters. I think he's the best vertical spacer in the league. I think if there's a guy that you're talking about throwing lobs above the rim, there's nobody better than Anthony Davis. As far as isos and post-ups, um, he's a good iso post-up player, but not as good as he's capable of being. He's pretty good this year, well over a point per possession in a uh, post-up situation this year. He actually shot 61% on hook shots this year. That's a, kind of his bread and butter out of the post. Uh, he's got a good baseline rip-through move as he tries to kind of bury the defender under the basket and take a power dribble to get back. He's good at drawing fouls. Um, but nothing got close to what he reached in the 2020 postseason. Outside of that, he's been kind of somewhat average um, uh, compared to his peers as a shot creator. That 2020 postseason, though, is an interesting little window of time, which we'll come back to in a little bit. His crowning achievement was he was the second best player on the 2020 Lakers. And not just a usual second best player like we've talked about in other elements of this list. Like Anthony Davis was a bona fide top tier superstar in that playoff run. Like LeBron James was better than him in that playoff run, but only because he was the best player in the world. I thought LeBron was the best player in the world that season, but I ranked Anthony Davis at four that season. I basically went LeBron, Steph, KD, and then Anthony Davis at that point. Uh, And then I think I had Giannis at five, if I remember correctly at that point in time. But Anthony Davis was a number two, but only in relation to LeBron James. He was every bit the superstar that the other guys at the top of the league were at that point. He averaged 28 points, 10 rebounds, and four assists in that playoff run on 67% true shooting, which is ridiculous. But his shot making was just off the charts. 59% effective field goal percentage on catch and shoot jumpers in that playoff run. 45% effective field goal percentage on pull up jump shots in that playoff run. 52% on runners and 78% at the rim. And it led to this super high level half court shot creation. It became a big deal for the Lakers that they could just dump the ball to Anthony Davis in the post with seven seconds on the shot clock. And he was going to get a bucket basically one out of two times. As a matter of fact, he ran 198 ISOs and post-ups in that playoff run, scored 217 points, including passes. So just a ridiculous uh, uh, shot creation postseason for Anthony Davis. A ton of tough jump shots off the dribble over both shoulders, off of different footwork and 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 uh, dribble combinations. He was just a huge part of what made the Lakers a championship team in that season. It was very much LeBron 1A, Anthony Davis 1B, uh, which I think kind of sets him apart from some of his peers. Now, he hasn't been able to re- uh, replicate that offensive success since that point, 
But it doesn't really matter. He did it long enough to get a Larry O'Brien trophy, and that makes you immortal, basically, in the history of the NBA. Biggest what if of Anthony Davis's career? What if in the 2020 season, it didn't get stopped by COVID? And the reason why I say that is the uh, uh, the one of the Lakers I thought would have won the championship anyway. They started the season 24 and three that year. I thought they were clearly the best team in the league. They were the best team in the West. They had some issues with the Clippers earlier in the season, but they solved those issues uh, right before the season got shut down. They uh, took care of the Clippers in a game on the road, at, at, on the road, but in the Clippers arena. Uh, and then they had also beat the Bucks, and, and LeBron was like in a position where he was in a good spot to win MVP. I actually thought he should have won MVP that year. But then the season gets cut short. Now, why does that matter? Because I do believe they would have won the title anyway. And in a traditional offseason where Anthony Davis gets to rest, I think he comes into the following year in better shape. And I think he has better injury luck. But instead, there was this ridiculously quick turnaround. As a matter of fact, the Lakers hoisted the trophy on October 11th. And then on December 22nd, they were playing a regular season NBA game with obviously training camp to, uh, uh, coming in a couple weeks before that. So they basically got like maybe six weeks off before they had to start playing basketball again. And I do think that Anthony Davis ended up taking most of that time off, as did most of the players on the Lakers. And I think that that directly led to some of the injury issues that they dealt with in that particular season, which kind of spiraled over the course of the next couple years for AD. And I, I wonder sometimes if that 2020 season was more normal, if uh, AD was in a traditional kind of routine that he had been in for the earlier seasons of his career, I wonder if he would have been healthier. Moving on to number 16, Jason Kidd. One-time NBA champion in 2011 as a role player for the Dallas Mavericks. Also a two-time best player on a finals team with the New Jersey Nets in the early 2000s. Five-time first-team All-NBA, six-time All-NBA in total, nine-time All-Defense. Led the league in assists five times. The prime I put down from 1996 to 2010, it's a ridiculously long prime. He made an All-Star team in 1996 and then made another All-Star team in 2010. Uh, 14.7 rebounds and nine assists with two steals per game on 51% true shooting. 15, seven and nine with two steals in the playoffs on 50% true shooting. His claim to fame, he was one of the best defensive guards in the league during that era, but he was the master of the fast break. That was, he was probably the very best player in the league at playing fast break basketball at that particular time. That New Jersey Nets team was super fun. They were super athletic. They had this ridiculous front line with Richard Jefferson and Kenyon Martin. Uh, Kenyon Martin. They also had Kerry Kittles out there. They would just get stops, and run the floor. They were the number one defense in the league um, in 2002 and in 2003, and they just got stops, and they ran it down your throat. And Jason Kidd was like a, a really good athlete that would just go down the floor with, with crazy pace, and then if you didn't stop him, he was going all the way to the rim and laying it up. And if you did stop him, he just had, he just had massive control over the fast break to get easy dunks and layups in transition. He also kind of, he had this like, um, those of you guys who watched back in that era will remember, he, he would like kind of throw these like one arm passes up the floor, just like these rifle passes up the floor when guys would get ahead on the break. He, that was like the identity of the New Jersey Nets. They got stops and they ran in transition. They just ran it down your throat. Uh, so let from there, let's just skip ahead to the crowning achievement. And we'll come back to his archetype. So he was the best player on two NBA finals teams, literally got within two wins of an NBA championship in 2003. He also finished second in MVP voting behind Tim Duncan in 2002. Uh, in those, in that two year span, he averaged 17 points, seven rebounds and nine assists, 20 points, eight rebounds and nine assists in the playoffs. And they were actually down by two in game five of the 2003 NBA finals with four and a half minutes left. 
and they just couldn't get it done. Steve Kerr hit a couple of big uh, jump shots down the stretch of that game, and the Spurs ended up winning, and then they closed it out in six. But they were pretty close relative to some other finals teams to actually getting the job done. And then after that, uh, uh, he had some knee issues and kind of lost his ceiling at that point, but we'll get to that in a minute. His archetype, just a huge guard, six foot four, 215 pounds. He was one of the best defenders in the league, really good defensive instincts, played play passing lanes well, disrupted ball handlers. He was actually, uh, a lot of people don't realize this, Jason Kidd is second all-time in NBA history in steals. He could switch and guard bigger players as well, famously did so to LeBron James in the 2011 NBA Finals at times. A decent half-court offensive player. Got to the rim a lot. It was different than Chauncey Billups. He's very right-hand heavy. Loved to drive to the right. Liked to get all the way to the rim. Uh, not much of a pull-up shooter. He took some and he made some, but not nearly as frequent a pull-up jump shooter as someone like Chauncey Billups was. He was good at drawing fouls. Uh, like a lot of the big guards from that era, played a lot of post-up basketball. But again, he was at his best in transition. That That was like his bread and butter. He was an inconsistent jump shooter early in his career, but he worked really hard at it and became basically a dead-eye jump shooter in catch-and-shoot situations by the tail end of his career, which turned him into a functional role player on a championship team. Something that, like, that's what I was kind of talking about with Russell Westbrook earlier. Like, when Jason Kidd had his knee injury and started to decline, he changed his game and became a player that could kind of change his role and, and fit within a championship context. As a matter of fact, in the 2010 season, Jason Kidd took over 400 catch-and-shoot jump shots and made them at a 65% effective field goal percentage. So that gives you an idea of the level of uh, of uh, uh, competency he built as a jump shooter towards the tail end of his career. Biggest what-if of Jason Kidd's career, in my opinion, is what if his knee held up? He had microfracture surgery in 2004, never really got back to what he was as an athlete after that. And the reason why that's interesting to me is the league was wide open during that stretch. From 2004 to 2008, we had five different NBA champions. And so it's interesting to think if he had held up, whether or not him and the Nets could have broken through one of those years. Number 15, Dwight Howard. NBA champion as a role player with the Lakers in 2020. Best player on a finals team in 2009 with the Orlando Magic. Five-time first-team All-NBA. Eight total All-NBA selections. Three-time Defensive Player of the Year. Five times All-Defense. Five-time Rebounding Leader of the Year. Uh, a rebounding champion, whatever you want to call it. Two-time Block Leader for the NBA. His uh, uh, prime I put down is 2007 to 2014. In that span, he averaged 20 points and 13 rebounds to go with 2.3 blocks per game. In the playoffs, he averaged 20 points, 14 rebounds with 2.7 blocks per game. His claim to fame was he was the best center in the NBA during his prime. He had four consecutive top five MVP finishes. He was the runner-up for MVP in 2011. He had 51 games with 20 points and 20 rebounds. As a matter of fact, if you go back... Uh, uh, I was using uh, uh, an AI platform for this, but if you go back to uh, 18, uh, 1983 is basically the cutoff. Since 1983, nobody in the NBA has had more 2020 games than Dwight Howard. Um, anybody got a guess who's number two? If you guessed Andre Drummond, you were correct. That's a random one for you. Uh, but Dwight was also the very best defensive player in the league and the best vertical spacer in the league. Iconically, he had a game-winning dunk um, on a on a sideline out of bounds lob in a regular season game in his early Magic career, his archetype you know it's hard to describe. He was another unicorn. He was just a complete mountain of a man at his position. The, the way I would describe it is like the way that Giannis looks as a power forward, and it just doesn't even make sense to see him next to other power forwards. That's the way Dwight Howard looked next to other centers. He just was chiseled and filled out in a way that just was completely different than any other NBA player at that point. 
He's the very best defensive player in the league. He was a ridiculous rim protector. As a matter of fact, he's 13th on the all-time NBA blocks list, which is really impressive when you factor in the number of injuries that he dealt with. He's a pretty good post-up player, but never as good as he should have been. He had uh, decent footwork. It's basically like he'd go through the lane with these sweeping hooks, so he'd kind of like go across the lane off of his left foot and take like a right-handed sweeping look in the lane, a uh, hook in the lane. Uh, towards the baseline, it was more of a traditional footwork, kind of like Pau Gasol, where it's just drop step and then like a left-handed hook on the right on the left block and a right-handed hook on the right block along the baseline. He had a decent spin move too. Um, a, a really good power dribble where you just shut guys off with that left shoulder and send them flying and just rise up and dunk. A lot of you guys have seen, you know, a half dozen or so crazy Dwight Howard post up dunks. Um, <clears throat> good little hook shot. He made, made it just under half of the time. Not not as sharp as he probably should have been with that shot, but he was pretty good with his hook shot. Uh, the real, the really, the thing that held him down was in terms of his post up efficiency. Was he really struggled to make free throws? Was consistently in the mid fifties, low sixties, right? And then he was never a good passer. And this is actually a crazy stat. Dwight Howard amassed one thousand six hundred seventy six assists in his career to go with three thousand three hundred and two turnovers, almost double. And so the turnovers and the missed free throws just kind of like hindered some of his success as a post player, despite having some okay footwork and a decent hook shot, right? So he was consistently below a point per possession in post-up situations and just not quite as good as his peers. His crowning achievement, um, you could go two different ways here. You could talk about his uh, peak as a player, which I think was in 2011. Uh, He averaged 23 and 14 on 62% true shooting and finished second in the MVP race, but he lost in the first round. So you guys know I'm going to go with the playoff accomplishment. So I put uh, Dwight's claim to fame as, or his crowning achievement as the 2009 finals run. The 2009 Magic were a really fun team. They were the best defense in the league, anchored by Dwight Howard, but they had this really good offense that wasn't as centered around Dwight Howard as you would think. They did run a lot of post-ups for Dwight, but they were mainly a pick-and-roll team. They had these two really good pick-and-roll handlers in uh, Jameer Nelson and Hito Turkoglu, and they actually ran more pick-and-roll than anybody in the league that season. And A lot of it was just Dwight setting good screens, rolling hard to the rim. He was the best vertical spacer in the league at the time. And then they just had a ton of shooting. Uh, with Courtney Lee out there and with uh, Richard Lewis out there. Just everybody could shoot. They spaced the floor really well. It's kind of funny looking back because they were second in the league in three-pointers made that year with 817. To give you an idea, uh, the Bulls made the fewest in the league this year at 854. So the second best three-point shooting team in 2009 would be the very worst three-point shooting team today, which goes to show you how much the league has changed. But they spread teams out. They got great looks and pick and roll. Uh, uh, and they played great defense. And that was their identity. They upset the one-seed Cavs team in the Eastern Conference Finals, despite LeBron James averaging 39-9-8, or excuse me, 39-8-8 eight eight on 59% true shooting. But Dwight just absolutely obliterated Zydrunas Ogalskis and Anderson Vergeau. Uh, averaged like 28 in the series. He had 40 points and 14 rebounds in Game 6. Knocked down all his, most of his free throws. He was 12 for 16 from the line in that game too. But then he ran into the Lakers, and the Lakers just defended Dwight extremely well. They held him down to 15 points per game. Dwight also had 20 turnovers in five games. You can do the math there. And they ended up losing the series in five games. Uh, I wanted to shout out Dwight Howard for his late career here because he bounced around as weird. Like They had a couple decent years in Houston, right? He uh, um, – Gets eliminated by that crazy Damian Lillard buzzard beater in 2014. Then they make it to the conference finals in 2015, but they get their butts kicked. 
Uh, but then he's all over the place. A year in Atlanta, a year in Charlotte. He did a year in Washington, but then he finally settles down in L.A. This weird non-guaranteed contract. They tell him he's never going to start. He's going to come off the bench even though he's better than JaVale McGee. Basically just like, we don't want to deal with any of your shit. So you can come here, but there's going to be all these stipulations. And to Dwight's credit, he fit in extremely well, was a great teammate, was a super important bench piece for the Lakers. Ended up starting some key games for the Lakers in the postseason. Was a huge defensive weapon against Nikola Jokic. Ended up getting his contract guaranteed in the middle of the season, kind of as like a a, a sign of the the Lakers kind of buying into him and and, and and giving him that vote of confidence. And just was a really important piece for a very very good NBA championship team in the 2020 Los Angeles Lakers. Was, was probably like their sixth or seventh best player on that team. Biggest what if of uh, Dwight Howard's career. What if Courtney Lee makes the layup at the buzzer of game two of the two, uh, 2009 NBA Finals? So it was a really smart play design, right? Game's tied, I think, at 88. And uh, they're inbounding from the opposite sideline. And Dwight's posting up Powell right in front of the passer, which pulls Powell into basically post-defense, right? Like a three-quarter front, which takes him away from the rim because uh, Dwight's standing outside the block. Everybody else is kind of above the key, and Courtney Lee's at the top of the key, and Rashard Lewis actually comes up and sets a back screen on Kobe Bryant, who's guarding Courtney Lee. And because the rim was vacant, and because Kobe didn't switch the screen like they probably should have, Courtney Lee ends up getting a pretty good look at the rim on a lob pass, and he smokes it. But even crazier, if you actually remember in that game, on the previous possession in a late shot clock situation, Courtney Lee actually drives into the lane and misses another layup, a little right-handed scoop shot. Both of these were tough shots. I, I, I don't want to act like they were 100% layups. They weren't. Both of them were probably like layups you'd miss one out of three times but it's crazy because you have a two and three chance of making it and you get two chances at it and he misses them both and if he makes one of them they have a very good chance to go up 2-1 in the series and then who knows what happens from there uh number 14 Allen Iverson one of our two remaining players who has not won an NBA championship again shout out to Muneeb 2001 who guessed the two players correct in Steve Nash and Allen Iverson. He was the best player on a finals team in 2001, three-time first-team All-NBA, seven-time All-NBA total selections, four-time scoring champion, and a three-time steals leader in the NBA. He won the 2001 regular season MVP award as well. His prime I put down from 1999 to 2008. In that stretch, he averaged 29 points, four rebounds, and six assists on 52% true shooting. In the playoffs, 30 points, four rebounds, and six assists on 49% true shooting. We'll talk about efficiency in the minute because I I think that's a big thing that kind of colors Allen Iverson's career that I want to dive into a little bit. Allen's claim to fame. I thought he was the very best scorer of the early 2000s and probably the second best scorer of that entire era behind Kobe Bryant. In fact, if you pull up total points, uh, if you look just at the window of Iverson's prime from 2000, uh, excuse me, 1999 to 2008, he was second in total points behind Kobe with 19,443. Anybody got a guess who's third place? Again, Kobe's first, they're going from 99 to 08. Kobe's first, Allen Iverson's second. Anybody got a guess for third place? If you guess Dirk, you are correct. Fourth place, I'll be really surprised if anybody can get this. Paul Pierce was fourth in scoring over that span. His archetype, he was just this ridiculous shifty guard. I thought he had the best crossover in the NBA at the time, the sweeping right to left. And like, it's funny because every kid has been trying to cro- copy that uh, crossover forever. Even Kobe basically copied that crossover. Um, 
That like it, it's it's funny. This is going to be one of the big themes with Allen Iverson. He just had such great influence on basketball culture during this era. He basically invented high volume pull up shooting. He had this crazy arsenal of traditional pull ups and like these drifting little leaners and fadeaways in the lane. He he was really good at generating like close pull up jump shots to the rim. Here's how ahead of the game Allen Iverson was as a pull up jump shooter in 2005, which is as far back as synergy goes with their tracking. Iverson attempted 672 pull-up jump shots. Second most in the league was Tracy McGrady with 451. So Allen Iverson attempted 221 more pull-up jump shots than anybody else in the entire NBA during that season. Even crazier, here's how ahead of the game he was, his 672 attempts in pull-up jump shots would have ranked second in the NBA this year behind DeMar DeRozan. Um, so just like kind of in, invented the idea of a guard just taking a ton of pull-up jump shots as you'd find openings off the dribble. He's also a freaky athlete in his younger years. A lot of people forget about that. I would say that there is a decent argument to be made that nobody in this era, in this list of, other than maybe Steph Curry, nobody in this list from 1999 to 2003, uh, 2023, uh, like influenced the game of basketball as much as Allen Iverson. Again, like if you, my generation, people that are in there, I would say anybody who's in their early thirties, between 30 and 35, you guys, if you're from that group, Allen Iverson just was the guy we all wanted to be like. Everyone wanted to look like him on the court. We copied his moves. We copied his dribble combinations and his footwork. It's just what we did. Um, his crowning achievement, he was the best player on a finals team in 2001. The 2001 Sixers were a really interesting team because they were top five defense in the league, anchored by Dikembe Mutombo. Um, and they also had just a ton of athleticism around him. Aaron McKee and Tyrone Hill were important uh, wings on that team. Eric Snow was one of the very best defensive guards in the league on that particular team. Kind of took a lot of the point of attack assignments that Allen Iverson didn't want to take. Um, and basically, they got stops and they let Allen Iverson cook. They won a ton of games that way. They were the one seed in the conference. They won a couple of hard-fought series against Vince Carter's Raptors and against Ray Allen's Bucks. And then they ran into one of the greatest teams of all time in the 2001 Lakers. But as you guys remember, he drops 48 points in game one of the NBA Finals, that iconic stepping over Tyron Lue shot. Um, Sixers end up winning in OT. And then the Lakers went four straight because the Lakers were one of the best teams of all time. And I think they were undefeated in the Western Conference that year. They didn't really have much of a chance. It's very similar to LeBron in game one of the uh, of the 2018 NBA Finals. But that uh, shot and step over, that pullback dribble jump shot with Ty Lue on the ground and the step over, that's one of the most iconic moments in NBA history. Just another big thing that kind of helps color the, uh, the uh, imprint that Allen Iverson had on the NBA during that era. Biggest what if for me, for an Allen Iverson, is what if he played in this era? Allen Iverson suffers from an even worse case of, you know, uh, of like retroactive revisionist history than Kobe Bryant does. And the main reason why is the using of efficiency to just to compare straight across with players from this era when the game is very different and using that to undermine what they accomplished. You got to remember, not, like, the league in general had almost no shooting on the floor and was just completely clogged and there was no space to operate. That was already what it was like. It was especially like that on those Sixers teams that were very defensive-minded. And so Allen Iverson was forced to constantly take and make incredibly difficult shots. And so his percentages suffered for that. You can tell by just looking at the rest of that era and all of the scores, and all of the scores were relatively low efficiency compared to the scores of this era. But that's just how the game has changed. 
with Allen Iverson's quickness, his athleticism early in his career, his handle and his jump shooting and his basketball IQ, if I picked him up today and I dropped him on the Oklahoma City Thunder instead of Shea Gilgis Alexander, he's going to be as efficient as Shea Gilgis Alexander. Like that's the bri- the gap that we have to bridge with these conversations is you can't go apples to apples comparison over two eras. You have different players on the floor, which leads to different spacing. The rules were interpreted slightly differently in those eras. The pace of the game was different. The also just like again, you have to understand like the uh, you're only capable of operating with the information that's available to you at the time, right? Like. Now we know there's a ton of value in three-point shooting, and so we take a lot of threes. But back then, it just wasn't something that the league was very interested in. I read to you guys the the three-point attempt numbers earlier uh, when we were talking about the magic. So, like, it just was a different era. So you got to look at it within the scope of that particular era. And again, say what you want about the efficiency even relative to his peers. That was a Sixers team that depended on him to take incredibly difficult shots, and that's what he had to do. And so I hope that... And I'll, that's what I meant as the as the what if. If Allen Iverson played in today's era, he would have been way more efficient. And I wonder if he would have been looked at more positively compared to his peers. All right, guys, that is all we have for today. We'll be back tomorrow with uh, 13, 12, 11. And then we're heading into one player a week, uh, one player a day for the next two weeks. As always, I sincerely appreciate you guys. And I will see you tomorrow. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like in the parking lot at your kid's peewee championship game. A trophy bigger than your five-year-old is blocking the rear windshield of the car in front of you. As they reverse into you, you're stuck on defense. And if you don't have the right auto insurance coverage, this crash could drain your athletic fund. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results, like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility.